and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. It is the penultimate episode of our uh, of our podcast. Uh, yes. Until of season two of the podcast. Of season two of our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. The penult- season one, penult- 200 episodes. Season two. <laughs> 35 30 so 30 or so (laughs) (laughs) exactly um we i will say at the top uh we were just talking about what we're planning for the last episode and uh we do have something kind of special for you guys next week so well not next week two weeks from now it'll be fun it will be fun so we're hoping that you like it yes it'll be fun it'll be light it'll be just a couple of gals chatting and uh you know sharing some facts no dictators no dictators. I'm sorry, everybody. No dictators. I'm, no uh, <laughs> internal organs. Nope. No, nope. Um, no. I don't know. Creepy crawlies. No, no bugs. Just something light, fresh, flirty, and fun for your holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're looking for. So uh, today I've got like a, just, you know, like I'm, you know, going back to basics. I got mm-hmm. my, I got a, I was like, I'm going to do an artist as my last episode. Great. So uh, today I'm going to talk about one of my favorite surrealists, um, and her name is Remedios Faro. Uh, you're going to have to spell that for the oh, audience. Uh, don't worry, I will. It's uh, Remedios, R-E-M-E-D-I-O-S, Varo, V-A-R-O, or Baro uh, in Spanish. Um, her full legal name is Maria de los Remedios Alicia Rodriga Baro y Uranga. Uh, and she was born in Angles in northeastern Spain in 1908. Yeah, I mean, I could have I could have guessed that part. Yeah, that she was born in Spain. That she was born in Spain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I will not be referring to her by her entire name. Because uh, then the episode was, would be nine and a half hours long. Yes. If you did it every as much time. As, as much as people like us, that is too much. Uh, we will be referring to her as Remedios Baro from here on out, um, or just Baro. Uh, her father was a hydraulic engineer, um, and his profession often uprooted the family, so they kind of lived all over the place in Europe. Um, but he recognized her artistic talent really early, and he had her reproduce his technical engineering sketches just like for fun. So she got to be very good at technical drawing early on in her life. Uh, He was also an intellectual. Uh, He was a believer in universalism, which is the philosophical concept that certain ideas recur in all cultures. Um, He also introduced her to the work of Edgar Allan Poe and Alexandre Dumas and Jules Verne. So a lot of this kind of like mystic, interesting, kind of dark literature. Um, She was also provided texts on mysticism, science, and philosophy. And so these first few years of her life left an impression on her that would later show up as motifs in her work. Um, such as machinery, furnishings, and artifacts. And we'll we'll describe a little bit of her artwork later on in the episode. Uh, also, Romanesque and Gothic architecture, which was unique to Anglais, uh, also showed up in her later artistic production as well. So there's a lot of, whenever there's buildings, they tend to have like a Romanesque or a arches. Gothic kind of style. Yes, arches and like very pointy roofs and that kind of thing. Can you tell I spent a lot of time uh, paying very close <laughs> attention in architecture class? Uh, her mother, on the other hand, was a devout Catholic. Um, Romedios, her first name, or her the name that she went with, 
uh, was named after the Virgin of Los Remedios or the Virgin of the Remedies. Um, at 15, her parents enrolled her at the Escuela de Bellas Artes in Madrid, uh, which was the alma mater of Salvador Dali and Pablo Picasso. So they the were like, she's of, an artist. School of pretty art. School of beautiful art. Yep. <laughs> exactly. My Spanish is muy Excellent. bueno. Muy bueno. Um, interestingly enough, as an adult, she kind of resisted speaking about her childhood. Um, she said once, quote, I do not wish to talk about myself because I hold very deeply the belief that what is important is the work, not the person. So, hmm. um, unfortunately she was kind of a rebel or fortunately she was kind of a rebel and she eventually just kind of rebelled against all of it. The formal instruction of the escuela, her father's expectations, her mother's religious ideology. And, you know, by the time she had graduated from escuela, um, these surrealistic elements were already kind of apparent in her work. Um, and this was happening at the same time that French surrealism was having an early influence on Spanish surrealism. Okay. And so she really took to this idea of French interest in French surrealism. So while she was in Madrid, she had her initial introduction to surrealism through lectures, exhibitions, films, and theater. Um, she was a regular visitor to the Prado museum and she took particular interest in the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, most notably the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is held at the Prado, as well as other artists such as Francisco de Goya. Um, her, like, uh, the way that she depicts bodies, like human bodies, is very Bosch-esque. Okay. These kind of, like, long, attenuated, thin bodies with long arms and legs and these interesting shaped faces, um, which she kind of turned into kind of like this weird alien look, which is cool. So in 1930, at age 19, she eloped with fellow student Gerardo Lizarraga, and they left for Paris. Um, and this marriage basically allowed her to flee her hometown and exercise her to independence. So it seems like she married this guy because he was willing to marry her and he could get her out. <laughs> um, after a year in Paris, Lizarraga got a job in Spain, and the couple eventually moved back to Barcelona, and at the time, the European Center of the Artistic Avant-Garde. So Barcelona was like the place to be if you wanted to be a surrealist mm. or an avant-garde theater producer or writer. Um, and to make ends meet, both, both Lizarraga and Baro worked for the Thompson advertising firm while they were in Barcelona. Um, she also participated in a drawing exhibition in Madrid for the first time in 1935, um, and she displayed a work uh, called Composicion or P Composition. Um, in 1937, she met the political activist and artist Esteban Frances and left her husband behind to fight in the Spanish Civil War. What? Um, so she was like, <laughs> bye. And so her husband fought in the Spanish Civil War and she was like, I'm heading back to Paris with this handsome guy, Frances, and also the poet Benjamin Paré. Oh, she didn't leave him to fight in the war. No, that was, I know that. that she left him poorly. and then he fought in the war. Yes, he fought okay. in the Spanish Civil War. Okay. No, she was not like, bye. She I'm put on go. some pantalones and. Uh, yep. <laughs> and grabbed a gun. Grabbed and, a howitzer and mm -hmm. went out there. Um, no, she, uh, she moved back to Paris and Benjamin Paré, the poet actually ended up being her second lover. Um, and they went there in order to escape from the political unrest. And she shared a studio with both Frances and Paré. Um, she never divorced Lizaraga, uh, and she had a bunch of different partners slash lovers throughout her life, but, um, she remained friends with all of them in particular with her husband, Lizaraga and also Paré, like her and Paré stayed really close friends. 
So in Paris, uh, like most artists, she lived in poverty. She worked odd jobs. Um, she had to copy and even forge paintings in order to get by, which is kind of interesting. I always picture Paris artists in the turn of the century, like living in a turret, like yes. living in, a, yeah. like, mm-hmm. the, in like the highest part of a building in the smallest apartment with like a couple mm-hmm. of windows. Yes. And like looking out over the city and painting and smoking. Yeah. That's a hundred percent what I imagine as well. <laughs> um, she unfortunately produced very little work while she was uh, living in Paris. This was probably due to her status as what's known as a femme enfant hmm. or a child woman. Um, and the way women were never taken seriously as surrealist artists. So a lot of like the girlfriends and hangers on and um, women that kind of like were in the same circle as a lot of these surrealist artists, they were seen as just kind of like at best muses and at worst like groupies, even Mm -hmm. though most of them were good artists in their own right and produced their own work. Um, But she was never taken seriously and they were never taken seriously because despite all of their talk about like equality and like, Oh, philosophy and all this stuff, these guys were like, meh, but still boys club, no girls allowed. Meh. Boo. Um, yeah, boo. Um, so she said once, reflecting on her time in Paris, quote, yes, I attended those meetings where they talked a lot and one learned various things. Sometimes I participated with works in the exhibitions. I was not old enough, nor did I have the aplomb to face up to them, to a Paul Eluard, a Benjamin Perret, or an André Breton. I was with an open mouth within this group of brilliant and gifted people. I was together with them because I felt a certain affinity. Today, I do not belong to any group. I paint what occurs to me, and that is all. So she never really, while she is considered a surrealist now, she never felt, she never like ascribed a, a yeah, she title didn't get to like herself. A, she didn't like get branded. Like, yes, exactly. She didn't get a leather jacket with Mm-mm. surrealist yeah, like embroidered on the back. back. Yeah. Yep. She she was like, no, nah, thanks. I'm going to do my own thing. Um, so then, of course, here comes World War II. Classic. So at the beginning of World War II, Perret was imprisoned by the French government for his political beliefs, and Barrow was also imprisoned as his girlfriend. Um, a few days after she was freed, the Germans entered Paris, and she was forced to join other refugees leaving France. Mm-hmm. Uh, Perret was freed soon after, and the two escaped to Mexico, acquiring Mexican nationality. So in November of 1941, Barrow, uh, along with Perret, boarded the Serpa Pinto in Marseille to flee war-torn Europe. Um, the terror she experienced at this time actually remained a significant psychological scar for her, and she painted it a okay. lot, this kind of horror of war. Mm-hmm. Um, she had initially considered her time in Mexico to be just temporary. Um, however, except for a year spent in Venezuela, she would reside in Mexico for the rest of her life. Um, and even to this day, she is considered a Mexican surrealist. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in Mexico, she met regularly with other European artists and met native artists such as Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. Uh, but her strongest ties were to other exiles and ex- expatriates. Mm. Um, she and Leonora Carrington, who is another um, surrealist, she was British and lived in Mexico, and the surrealist photographer Katie Horna, they formed a bond that would affect their lives and work immensely. They were actually known as the Three Witches. Okay, can you say the three witches' names again? Sure. So it's uh, Remedios Varro, Leonora Carrington, and the surrealist photographer Katie Horna. She was also a photojournalist as well. Cool. Um, She was German-born and um, spent the rest of her life in Mexico as well. They also lived near each other um, in Colonia Roma, which was a neighborhood um, 
that a lot of other expatriates and artists and things would live in. Um, Varro and Carrington had previously met while living in Paris. Uh, they met through Andre Breton, obviously like the head surrealist guy. Uh, <laughs> and so they, they met that way. Um, and although Horna did not meet the other two until they were all in Mexico city, she was already familiar with the work of Varro and Carrington after given a few of their paintings by Edward James, who was a British poet and a patron of the surrealist movement. So these ladies were like, best buds. They were like, oh my gosh, I'm such a big fan of yours. Like, oh no, no, no. Oh my God. I'm such a big fan of yours. And so they really not only became very close friends, but specifically Barrow and Carrington began like writing collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually wrote two unpublished plays together. Um, the first one was El Santo Cuerpo Grazosa, which means the fat bodied saint, the <laughs> saint with a fat body. <laughs> Uh, and Lady Milagra, which was actually unfinished, but um, they used a technique similar to that of the game Exquisite Corpse, where mm. they would take turns writing small segments of text and then they would put them together. Mm. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> Same. Uh, there's a reason why none of those things survived, uh, like those plays survived. But anyway... Um, even when they're not writing together, they were often working collaboratively. They were drawing from the same sources of inspiration. They were using the same themes in their paintings. Um, and because of that, their work looks extremely similar to the layman's eye. So if you see a Leonora Carrington painting and a Remedios Vero painting, they look very similar. Um, however, they have, there is one major difference in terms of art history, in terms of like connoisseurship. Mm -hmm. Barrow's painting is about line and form. So there's a lot of like very strong line, interesting shapes, um, while Carrington's work is about tone and color. So the the color and the the tone tonal shifts in that color are kind of the star of her paintings, while Barrow is a, uh, more about like the shape and the form of She's a line gal. Her. She's a real line gal, and that goes back to her dad. <laughs> Um, so Barrow and Carrington would stay extremely close friends for 20 years until Barrow's death. So in Mexico, um, unfortunately surrealism wasn't like as hot as it was in Europe. Um, Mexican muralism, which Diego Rivera was kind of um, like the Mm -hmm. main guy of was dominating the country's art scene. Um, and surrealism just wasn't well received. So Barrow worked as an assistant to Mark Chagall with the design of the costumes for the production of the ballet Aleco. Um, and that premiered in Mexico City in 1942. So she just kind of kind of kept her I didn't hand. No, he was in Mexico. Yeah, they there's a lot of like there's a Mexican surrealist movement. There's like Paris surrealism and Spanish surrealism because of World War II was so um, destabilizing. Yeah, a lot of these artists kind of like scattered to the four winds, and hmm. so they created these kind of interesting pockets of like community around the world. Um, she also worked at other jobs, including in publicity for the pharmaceutical company Bayer. Uh, and she did decorating for Clar Decor, which was a, a decorating company. Um, she began her third and last important relationship with Austrian refugee Walter Gruen. Um, he had endured concentration camps before escaping Europe, and they met in Mexico City. Um, he, thankfully, believed very fiercely in her work, um, and he was wealthy, so he gave her the economic and all, as well as the emotional support that allowed her to fully concentrate on her painting. Wow. So in 1955, she had her first individual exhibition at the Galleria Diana in Mexico City, and that was very well received. And one of the reasons for this was that Mexico had finally opened up to other artistic trends. Um, buyers were put in put on waiting lists for her work, and, and even Diego Rivera was supportive, which is a big deal because he was Didn't a like huge anybody. asshole. Yes, 
He was the worst. Um, her second showing was at the Salon de la Arte de Mujer in 1958, which is the Salon of Women's Art. Um, in 1960, her representative Juan Martin opened his own gallery and showed her work there and then actually opened up a second gallery in 1962 because her work was so popular. Um, and 62 was pretty much the height of her career. Unfortunately, only a year after that opening, she died suddenly of a heart attack. <laughs> Just like absolutely dropped dead. Yeah. Um, she, so because of this, her work is very well known in Mexico, mm -hmm. but it's not as commonly known throughout the rest of the world. You know, we're in a global society now. We know a little bit more about, you know, in the U.S. and in Europe, know more about Romero Severo than than before, like, you know, after the war. Um, but she is seen as a Mexican surrealist. Okay. Um, she had said about working in Mexico, quote, for me, it was impossible to paint among such, such anxiety, meaning in Europe. In this country, I have found the tranquility that I have always searched for. So... What was her work like? Um, please look it up if you get a chance. It's very interesting, very strange. I mean, it's surrealism, um, but it is it has like an alien kind of unsettling quality. She often painted images of women in confined spaces, um, achieving this kind of sense of isolation. Um, she herself didn't like label her work as feminist, um, but her work has been seen to kind of stretch the limits of and directly challenge these patriarchal ideas of femininity just in general because mm. of the, where she, you know, her personal lived experience. Um, her work also kind of gets rid of male interpretation of the female body in general. There's no like male gaze involved. Um, it it focused on female empowerment and agency. She also, uh, her figures were very androgynous, especially in her later work. And they kind of challenged this gender and the figures, um, so they don't fall neatly into gender normative categories, which is very like, you know, contemporary. Okay. Um, so often these, these figures could be seen of, could be either sex um, and creating the sense of like the middle area between the two sexes and of the gender norms placed on them. So a critic had said, because the female body, a sacred erotic artist space for men is transformed by borrow into non-gendered shapes and forms, namely animals and insects, the space becomes freed from monolithic sexual interpretation. So these female figures, you know, or not, um, are seen as more like animalistic or than human. So not sexy. Not, not sexy. sexy at all. Nope. Yep, not sexy at all. That's a bug. It is. Yes, exactly. So again, later in her career, these characters developed into these androgynous fi figures that had heart-shaped faces, these big almond-shaped eyes, and these aquiline noses that represented her own features. She had, you know, these these features mm -hmm. in her own face. Um, and she often depicted herself through these key features in her paintings, regardless of the figure's gender. So she doesn't really play out her personal strife on the canvas, but rather portrays herself in various roles in surreal dreamscapes. So she puts herself in these kind of like fantastical spaces rather than like do like a cut and paste kind of like, this was how I felt during the war kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so in creating these characters, she's kind of defining her identity piece by piece by creating these kind of fantastical characters. Um, also like many of the surrealists, she was drawn to the psychoanalytic theories of Sigmund Freud and Swiss psychiatrist, Carl Jung, both of whom focused on the complexity of the unconscious and untapped desires. Um, we don't know if she ever actually saw a psychoanalyst, although there were a few unsent letters seeking psychiatric help, uh, discovered in her belongings after she died. Hmm. 
but she did populate her paintings with overt references to the field of study. Um, So in the 1956 work, which was called Women Leaving the Psychoanalyst's Office, the central figure exits from the office of Dr. F.J.A., or Freud, Jung, and the Austrian psychotherapist Alfred Adler, and proceeds to drop her father's disembodied head into a small well, an act which she describes as correct to do when leaving the psychoanalyst's office. So looked at it, looked at a certain way, it could be her like kind of liberating herself from the patriarchy and approaching autonomy. So um, there was a triptych that was created in the last years of her life. That's, that's pretty uh, famous. Uh, the second piece called embroidering the earth's mantle is probably one of her more famous pieces. Okay. This was um, kind of a metaphor for her early years. So the first part, which is called toward the tower, this was 1961. She depicts herself as one of a group of uh, uniformed girls bicycling away from a mother superior figure, which was an allusion to the convent she attended for primary school. Mm-hmm. Uh, mother superior is joined by a looming man and a flock of birds. And the girl at the center resists the hypnotizing effects of her teachers who have entranced her schoolmates. Um, so that's toward the tower. So the central image embroidering the earth's mantle from 1961 offers an alternate view of creation at odds with her conservative Catholic upbringing, which created anxiety for borrow throughout her life. So in this work, convent girls are shown captive in a tower as they embroider a story dictated by a hooded figure. And the figure stirs a boiling liquid through which the thread emerges. Um, And finally, the final panel, which is called The Escape from 1962, represents her successful emancipation. Um, She is united with her lover and they flee to the mountains. So this this triptych that she painted late in life was basically like her biography or autobiography Mm -hmm. of this, like this, these were the struggles that I went through. Um, This is how I see the world. And then one day I will escape to another place where I will not have to, you know, deal with these being bound to the patriarchy or war or what femininity is supposed to be kind of thing. Um, So I highly recommend looking at her work. It's very interesting. Um, I had a friend in grad school who is like a huge fan of her work and, and tries to travel the world and see her work in, in C2 all over the place. But, um, it's very cool. It is surrealist. Her, her color palette tends to be kind of on the warmer side. It's very like orange and yellow and red, and it's just really cool. So I highly recommend. So that was, um, just a very quick. Interesting. I have never heard of her. She's great. Um, yeah, put some uh, put some links on the on the Twitter if it's still around. I will <laughs> as of this recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will definitely do so. Um, so <laughs> sweet. I was think thinking and thinking, and I was like, well, I already did a surrealist episode. Look that up, by the way. It's very good. Um, <laughs> you know what? Uh, what? We've done a lot of episodes of this podcast. <laughs> I was going to ask. If we've done a surrealist <laughs> one. <laughs> Yes, I did. I did a yes, surrealist yes, one yes, ages yes, ago, yes, and yes. I should have looked it up. Um, Dali, yeah, I et cetera, did. Yeah, Dali. We talked about Andre Breton and all the French, and I think you corrected my French a couple of times. Thankfully, well, so yay. degenerate I mean, art. Yes, degenerate art. That was uh, episode uh, one forty four. Everybody, nice. Oh, it was very good. <laughs> so good we remember we definitely remember definitely remember doing that um yeah that was uh dada and surrealism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. one of my favorites one of my favorites um so so because i've already done an episode on surrealism i was like what's my quiz gonna be about so you know what i'm just gonna you know what we're gonna do we're just gonna do just gonna do a fun one so i'm gonna (laughs) 
it's it's going to be it's a quiz on movies about artists. So like biopics Ooh. of artists. So I'm going to say Is the it year biopic. Yes. Do people say biopic sometimes. They do, which I think is wrong because opic, yeah, it's a bio, biography, picture, pick, you know? Yeah. Great. We're going like, with that. Yeah. Biopic. So I'm going to give you the year the movie came out. I'm going to tell you the name of the actor who plays the artist, and I'm going to give you a brief description of the movie, and then you're going to tell me the title. <laughs> that, it's that easy, guys. It is that easy. Okay. Question number one. 1956, Kirk Douglas. The life of a brilliant but tortured artist may have influenced Iggy Pop. Number two. 2003, Colin Firth. A young peasant maid in the household of an artist becomes his assistant and muse. Number three. 1965, Charlton Heston. The story of an artist struggling to paint a ceiling at the urging of a pope. Number four, 2000, Ed Harris, the life and career of a volatile American artist with a drinking problem. Number five, 2014, Timothy Spall, an exploration of the last quarter of a great eccentric British painter's life. Number six, 2002, Selma Hayek, a biography of a woman artist who channeled the pain of a crippling injury and her tempestuous marriage into her work. Number seven, 2014, Amy Adams, a drama about the awakening of a painter, her phenomenal success in the 1950s, and the subsequent legal difficulties she had with her husband, who claimed credit for her works in the 1960s. Number eight, 2008, Robert Pattinson, a highly fictionalized story about the youth of a famous Spanish artist and his relationship with poet Federico Garcia Lorca. Number nine, 1996, Sir Anthony Hopkins, the passionate Merchant Ivory drama tells the story of Francois Gillot, the only lover of this artist who is strong enough to withstand his ferocious cruelty and move on with her life. And finally, number 10, 1986, Nigel Terry, a retelling of the life of the celebrated 17th century painter through his brilliant, nearly blasphemous paintings and his flirtations with the underworld. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. I did not provide a lot of a lot of hints in this. A lot so. of these are are going to be things that were like Oscar Oscars like them, but yes, like people didn't see them. <laughs> I will say I have seen. Have I seen any of these movies? Hold on. Have I seen any of these movies? Boop boop boop. I did see one of them, and I hate hate hated it. I saw two of them, and I hated both of them. So <laughs> so take great. That what you it's fun will. quiz. Fun fun. Yeah, it's a fun fun time. Fun everybody. quiz about movies that I hate it. Okay. <laughs> 
Number one, 1956, Kirk Douglas. The life of a brilliant but tortured artist may have influenced Iggy Pop. <laughs> that was the only one with a hint. <laughs> no, I got nothing. Okay. I got nothing. Uh, uh, that's called Lust for Life, and it was about Vincent Van Gogh. Okay. I didn't see it. Um, <laughs> number two, 2003, Colin Firth, a young peasant maid in the household of an artist becomes his assistant and muse. Um, could this be Girl with a Pearl Earring? It is Girl with a Pearl Earring. Um, that one was apparently, I did not see it, but apparently highly, highly, highly fictionalized. Mm. Um, mostly because it uh, just like we don't know we don't anything know about like, her. anything about Vermeer yeah we don't know anything about Vermeer we especially don't know anything about the girl and the girl may have been just kind of like not a real girl not a she real may have person. just been like an amalgam of like a bunch of different like his daughter and like another model yeah. or whatever so I mean whatever there's you know a romance and you see Scarlett Johansson with her pouty lipped face on the movie poster yeah. and whatever um Vermeer is one of my favorite artists like to learn about mm-hmm. mostly because again, mostly because we don't know a lot about him. But um, one of the things I did research on in grad school was uh, fort fakes and forgeries. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the forties, there was an artist named Hans von Myron who was mm-hmm. painting fake Vermeers and then selling them to like the Nazis. And um, some of them were found among like all of, you know, the real baddies like art mm-hmm. stashes and then when he, he was like where'd you get this and they were like it came from hans von Meyren. and then they arrested him for like treason and like oh, selling geez. stuff to the nazis and stuff like that and so in court he would paint like he would recreate this these paintings and be like oh. no really it was me it wasn't I, yeah yep oops it was me i wasn't actually selling like national treasures to the nazis i was actually mm-hmm. selling fake painting to the nazis and that's better that's Um, better yeah that's something should be applauded (laughs) i was tricking the nazis Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's uh there are possibly still some vermeers out some things accredited to vermeer out there that Mm -hmm. might not actually be his and i love that yeah there's there's one called girl in a red hat that actually i think just got downgraded to like circle of vermeer or something like that yeah national portrait gallery yes and then there's, um, sorry, the National Gallery of Art. And then there's uh, the Salvatore Mundi one from that yes. they think is Leonardo that I don't think is his either. I don't think like, it's, oh, no. I love it. No, it's, it's so, no, it doesn't look anything like, and they think it was like the conservator that did most of the work. I watched that documentary. So good. Um, speaking sorry. of documentaries about Vermeer. Right, no, no, no. It's all right. If you haven't watched Tim's Vermeer, this is not just for you. This is for like everybody out there. Tim's Vermeer is such a good documentary. It's not even funny. So this guy, Tim, whose last name is, I don't know, Zmer Vermeer. Um, he's, he's like a tech genius and he's made a lot of money. And so he, for some reason, decided to like, I want to know how Vermeer made his paintings. And so he creates his own camera obscura and like tries to recreate uh, Vermeer painting through the technique that he thinks that Vermeer used, mm-hmm. which was basically like almost like paint by numbers, basically using like a mirror and like a camera obscura. It's wild. It's the wildest thing. And without any like art training, he like recreates a Vermeer with using like his daughter and like 
as a as a model and like recreates his entire interior and all this stuff. It's wild. I asked our conservator James Ham, wonderful guy. He does not listen to this podcast. I was like, "What yeah. did you think of Tim's Vermeer?" And he like gave me like a wry smile, like like I wasn't the only person who had asked him about Tim's Vermeer <laughs> that and he day. Was like, yeah, and he was like, "I think it's." an interesting concept. I was like, oh, okay. So you don't think Vermeer used this technique at all. Like you just think it was like the ravings of a madman, Tim. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting documentary regardless. I cool. highly recommend. All right. Where were we? We were Sorry. talking about Vermeer. Yeah. I should have just done an episode on Vermeer. Okay. Well, it would have been very short because we don't know much about him. <laughs> That's true. I'll, I do know that he had like a ton of kids. He had like 14 children or something insane like that. Um, question number three. 1965, Charlton Heston, the story of an artist struggling to paint a ceiling at the urging of a pope. I mean, I'm like, I'm like guessing that he played Michelangelo, but I don't he know did. what it was called. It was called The Agony and the Ecstasy. And I, I remember hearing this movie title, but I had no idea it was about Michelangelo. Um, so, I mean, Charlton Heston, he played Moses. He played, he like, he did all the historical greats. <laughs> so... I'm sure he absolutely chewed the scenery in that movie as well. All right. Question number four, 2000, Ed Harris, the life and career of a volatile American artist with a drinking problem. This is the only one I knew was going to come up and that's, that's Pollock. Yes, it is Pollock. Um, yeah, I didn't, wasn't he like uh, nominated for an Oscar for this? Yeah, I didn't I think see it. Marcia Gay Harden got an Oscar for it too. Yeah, because she yeah. played his wife. Mm -hmm. That's another one that like people think they have a Pollock. Yes, because it's so easy to to forge. It's so easy to forge a Pollock. It's wild. I will say um, the uh, art museum in Utica has an excellent Pollock, and the name of that museum escapes me at the moment. There's an art museum in Utica. Yeah, I the, thought they uh, just. I thought that's just where people burn buildings down. Right? Yeah, it's the arson capital of the world. Um, Munson Williams Proctor Arts Institute. They have a really nice modern collection, as a matter of fact. They have a better Pollock than we do. Um, all right, question number five. 2014, Timothy Spall, an exploration of the last quarter of a great eccentric British painter's life. Again, nothing, nothing. Uh, okay, I'm gonna, give you a, I'm gonna give you a hint. It's about um, an artist who has done a lot of seascapes and really beautiful landscapes. J.M.W. Turner. Yes, but what would you call him if you were meeting him? What would I call him? Yeah, you were like, oh, I'm such a big fan. Mr. Turner? Yes, that's it. You got it. No, that's I've never heard of this. I've never heard of this. <laughs> yeah, I, it, you wouldn't have heard of it unless you were a grad student in 2014. <laughs> yes, let's write yeah. a trivia question about it. <laughs> yep. No, I mean, it came out. It was like, you know, it's like a British production thing. I mean, Timothy Spall. I guess was a very good JMW Turner. Anyway, number six, 2002, Selma Hayek, a biography of a woman artist who channeled the pain of a crippling injury and in her tempestuous marriage into her work. Uh, is it called Frida? It is called Frida. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a lot of ink spilled over the fact that she was so brave as to like <laughs> wear the unibrow yeah. during the movie. But a lot of people pointed out that Frida Kahlo sported not only a unibrow, but she also sported a mustache. Mustache. And uh, Selma Hayek thought that was maybe a bridge too far and did not, <laughs> and had a smooth upper lip the entire film. 
<laughs> so um, she did not go with verisimilitude in the, her uh, depiction yeah. of Frida Kahlo. Not, not method there. No, not method there at all. Okay, number seven, 2014, Amy Adams, a drama about the awakening of a painter, her phenomenal success in the 1950s, and the subsequent legal difficulties she had with her husband, who claimed credit for her works in the 1960s. All right, this is about Margaret Keene. It is. called Big Eyes? It is called Big Eyes. Um, and this was a Tim Burton film, so it was oh. delightfully weird. Um, there were a lot of big eyes in it, I bet. Yeah, there were a lot of big eyes. It didn't do great. I don't think that um, that German actor played her husband. What is his name? Christoph Waltz mm. played her husband um, in that movie. All right, number eight, <laughs> 2008. Robert Pattinson, a highly fictionalized story about the youth of a famous Spanish artist and his relationship with poet Federico Garcia Lorca. Um... Did he play Picasso? He did not. He played the other famous Spanish artist. Oh, Dolly? Yes. Yep. I don't know what it would have been called. It was called Little Ashes. So let me tell let me tell you a little bit about this movie. It was so bad. It okay. was so bad. It was terrible. And this was the first movie, I believe, that Robin Robert Pattinson did after Twilight. Oh. So <laughs> okay. I, if I remember correctly, like all the girlies were like, oh my God, he's such a good actor. I'm going to go see Little Ashes. Little Ashes <laughs> is basically just like a two and a half hour threesome between <laughs> Robert Pattinson and the guy who played Federico Garcia Lorca and like, you know, you know Dolly's girlfriend or whatever. <laughs> and it's, it's just like, it's just a lot of masturbating. It's not good. The acting is not great. It's just... It was very bad. And by the time Robert Pattinson becomes like the Dali, like there's like a, like a, you know, epilogue of him when he's all, when he has become <laughs> Dali, he's got like the stupid little mustache and he's doing like the wide eyed weirdy Dali thing. It's embarrassing to watch. It's upsetting. It's not good at all. So avoid little ashes as much as possible. Again, that was an you know, an art student thing where I was like, oh, I like Dali's work. I'll watch little ashes. No, don't do it. Not worth your time. Noted. I wonder why they picked like pretty boy English actor to he's, play. He's like an indie darling and was an indie darling before he got cast in Twilight. So I think maybe, and also he may have been cast in Little Ashes because they were like, oh, we got Robert Pattinson. We're going to get some money out of this. We're going to get our money back <laughs> after making this film because all the Twilight fans are going to go see it without <laughs> thinking. Who knew? All right. Number nine, 1996, Sir Anthony Hopkins. The passionate merchant ivory drama tells the story of Francois Gillot, the only lover of this artist who is strong enough to withstand his ferocious cruelty and move on with her life. Is this him playing Picasso? Yes, it is him playing Picasso. And the movie is called... Blue Period. <laughs> oh, that's a very good guess. Oh! <gasps> You know what? It would have been better if it was called Blue Period. Um, it's actually called Surviving Picasso, which sounds like <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, the best part of this, I've never seen this movie again, um, but the best part of this is that Julianne Moore played Dora Marr, which I am like pumped about because Dora Marr was like the muse and she was an artist. Okay. And she was one of his girlfriends. And um, there's this great portrait of her by, mm, 
I want to say Otto Deeks, um, like in a cafe and she's like smoking a cigarette. She's like the coolest, most badass woman artist slash muse from this time period. And I love the idea that Julianne Moore plays her because she's a great actress. So I'm still not going to watch it, but good on you, Julianne. (laughs) All right. And number 10, I did see this movie in grad school mistake. 1986, Nigel Terry, a retelling of the life of the celebrated 17th century painter through his brilliant, nearly blasphemous paintings and his flirtations with the underworld. And this movie, I will say as a hint, is just the artist's name. That's just the title. Is it called Bosch? Is it Rana's Bosch? No, it's not. It's Italian. He's Italian. Um, 17th century? Yep. Blasphemous? Yes, blasphemous. Mm. He did a lot of portraits of young boys, you know, holding fruit and being <laughs> topless. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, um, he did a um, Judith Beheading Hall of Fairness. Um, Caravaggio. Excellent. You got it. It was Caravaggio. The movie's terrible. (laughs) It spends, it doesn't do anything with his life. It just spends a lot of time just like recreating vignettes from his paintings and like everybody freezes and the music plays Uh and then it fades to black. It is so boring. Don't watch it. So, the so moral- this concludes uh, <laughs> nine movies Lauren doesn't think you should watch. Nope. Nope. Don't do it. Uh, this is this was a quiz on movies about artists that no one should see. Don't do it. I, I implore you, please spend your time doing literally anything else. Um, so, <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of good art documentaries out there. Yes, I think it's excellent. hard to... Mm-hmm. Um, take someone's actual life and make it more interesting for the big screen. What's crazy is that so many artists had incredible wild lives and the fact that they could have just, just like direct to screen, like fully truthful. And in fact, and Hollywood just like throws a romance in there or like Mm -hmm. truncates the end or like makes them die in a really dramatic way. And it's like, you don't have to embellish it. Right. You don't have to gild the lily on this. Yeah. These people lived the craziest fucking lives. Trust your audience that they are going to be on board with it because it's like, that's these stories are amazing. And this is what we do. Julia, I'm going <laughs> to wrap it up now. This is what we do with our podcast. Julia is that we show people that real life stuff is so cool. And that, if you just have a little bit of extra time to like do some research on it and like present it in a cool way, you can learn stuff about things that you didn't have any interest in before. So there you go. Yeah. And it doesn't have to have a superhero in it. It doesn't have to have guys, guys, it doesn't have, it doesn't have a superhero in it. They're not real. We want to see movies besides superhero movies. Yeah. Okay. Guys, just like, just like, Chill out about it. God, God. We want to see things that are pretty. Yes. We want to see things that sound interesting. Yes, interesting. I don't want to see another like beefy white dude just like blowing up, glistening. Yeah, I don't want to see him glistening in the sun. I've seen enough of that. Thank you. (laughs) 
Anyway, that's uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, terrific. So, yes. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, thank you, Julia. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, we will, we'll, uh, uh, let's see. And you're going to have fun. You're going to have fun with our next episode, I think. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. It'll be, it'll be a fun, casual hang with two of your favorite ladies, Jewel and I. Uh, uh, so stay tuned for that. And uh, we will catch you next time. All right. Goodbye. Bye.